Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. We have a great show for you this weekend. We have none other than Missy Perdue back for a second time, all the way from Salisbury, Maryland. Welcome to the show. What a joy to be back again. Well, great to have you here again. We had such a great time last week. Really wanted to follow up on our previous discussion. Last week, we talked about your dad and the Sheraton Hotel, the whole brand, how it came from startup from nothing to 400 hotels and 20,000 employees. I'm probably getting the statistics wrong, but- No, you got it perfect. You nailed it. And uh, we talked a bit about giving and philanthropy and really wanted to dive deeper into that today. So you've been involved in this fight against human trafficking, and I'm thrilled to be able to help in even a minuscule way. So tell us a little bit more about that and what you've got planned. And there's just so many layers to this discussion. So where do you want to start? Well, I want to start by making sure that we were teaching about human trafficking. And one of the things that I can talk about are threats of murder and a 69.7 carat ruby. But let's leave that. I, I want before the end of our time together to get to it, but I still want people to be sort of curious what it's all about. Deal? Absolutely. Well, I can answer your question about me and human trafficking. No, my interest is in combating human trafficking. And I got into it a couple of years ago, actually two o'clock, March 11th, 2019, when I heard a lecture in human trafficking. And I wonder how many people who are listening to us or watching us were in the situation that I was back then where the word human trafficking didn't really mean a lot. There's just words. But then I heard this lecture on, oh my goodness, we saw pictures of little girls, maybe 10 or 12 years old, who are being raped 10 to 12 to 20 times a night, 365 days a year. And those little girls, their life expectancy was less than seven years. They were going to die of an overdose, suicide, disease, or murder for organ harvesting. And so I'm in the audience listening to this thinking, this is the worst thing I've ever heard. I mean, little innocent girls. And then I learned that, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15% of the sex trafficked children are boys as well. And then I began learning the scale of the problem. Human trafficking is $150 billion a year. And before COVID-19, it was the third largest source of revenue for organized crime. After COVID, it's the second largest. So that's what I'm involved in, trying to combat that. My accountant, about four years ago, gave up his practice entirely and as part of the ministry associated with his church, literally abandoned his accounting practice, moved to Cambodia to work boots on the ground, specifically combat human trafficking. I love that because I, I, I find it really difficult to imagine anything more evil than a little child ending up having her organs harvest after maybe seven years of absolute the worst misery that, that can happen. And I asked a psychiatrist, his name is Dr. Robert Kenkrow, he was the former chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at New York University Medical Center because mm -hmm. he treats the Johns and he also treats the victims. And I said, what's it like for the victim? Because, you know, so far from my experience, it is beyond my imagination, but he gave me something to imagine it with. And, you know, this is a man who treats victims and 
probably 40 or 50 years of, of knowledge of, of this kind of behavior. And Dr. Pancro said, I want you to imagine the most depressed you've ever been in your life. Maybe it's the death of somebody you loved, maybe the death of a relative, or maybe when you were young, that was a death of a pet, but just something that was just devastatingly painful and miserable and depressing. And he says, that's what it's like for a victim every single day. And if they're not rescued, that's what they're going to feel until they die. And he also said the chances of being rescued are something like one in a hundred. The way I got into it is, you know, I've, I've listened to this lecture and thought, my glory, there's a need, but I don't have any skill set that would help me like rescue someone or I couldn't be involved with rehabilitation. So I began asking different anti-trafficking organizations in the couple of years since then. I've done articles and probably more than a hundred of them. But I always ask, you know, what are your needs? And how about invariably it's funding or awareness? And I was aware of that really pretty early on. And I decided, hey, that's something that I could do. You know, as somebody who grew up in the Sheraton Hotel family, I'm pretty familiar with fundraising. I thought I could do something to raise funds. And also as somebody who spent my whole career in the media, radio, television, newspapers, and public speaking, that I could be part of raising awareness. And for the raising awareness part, I think in the last year, I've done almost 100 podcasts. And then I think I'm getting close to 100 articles that I've written and had published on human trafficking. And the most exciting thing possible has something to do with you, Victor. <laughs> yes, and I'm so glad to have been able to make some connections that have been helpful in this All regard. Right, here's so, the connection. Yeah. Courtesy of you, I had the extraordinary privilege of pitching to an editor at Psychology Today, and we got to talking about some of the, the issues that cause people to be vulnerable to trafficking. We also got to talking about some of the things that people who want to help stop it can do. And she agreed and has asked me, and it's in writing, to write a blog for, for Psychology Today. And the glorious thing of that is, Psychology Today has a social media presence with 10 million people. So if my initial goal was to help raise awareness, I'm on the right track. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart for making that connection. Oh, you're very welcome. And, you know, Psychology Today is a great publication. In fact, it even comes into our household. My wife runs a clinical family therapy practice. So we regularly get the, the actual physical magazine coming into our house. And they have a, a fantastic social media presence, a fantastic internet presence as well. They are a top hit website on the internet for sure. Well, I just can't believe how grateful I am to you for making that introduction. Thank you. And I, I'm going to give it my all, but I do have a background in journalism. For a good bit of my life, I worked for Scripps Howard and I was the most widely syndicated for a period of years, environmental columnist in the country. So I want to use whatever skills and abilities I developed doing that. I want to bring that just laser-like focus on bringing attention to human trafficking. And then a new project that we're involved in. Well, there, there's one that's kind of tied together. And I'm going to show you. Oh, yes. This is an idea from one of the volunteers. And one of the volunteers had this idea. Just about 75 years ago, Rosie the Riveter, remember this? Rosie the Riveter left her home and went into the factory and she and 
you know, the millions of other women who joined her, made it possible for men to leave factories and go fight the war. And that probably had a very large influence on the outcome of World War II. Well, it's been 75 years and Margot Dusterhouse had an idea. Why don't we sort of pay tribute to Rosie the Riveter by remembering her in the form of Rosie the Liberator? There, there are a couple of parts to this. And, and I hope people, members of our audience will have a pencil and paper handy to get an address where they can participate in this. But here's how it goes. Take a selfie of yourself making a muscle. And it's really nice if you have a, a bandana, but totally not necessary. And some people use blue bandanas or no bandana. And if you're a guy, uh, try for Rusty the Liberator. All right, post it on social media and challenge two other people to do it. And then I'm going to invite people to do the following. I want them to go to text WTF. And do ask me why WTF. There's a story behind it. Text WTF to 51555, and that will take you to my website where you can read more about Rosie the Liberator and where the money goes. And here's where the money goes. It's so cool. I'm arranging, I haven't completed this, but I'm, I'm about a third of the way through it. I'm asking some of the organizations that I've written about, I'm asking them, tell me your client that you have today who's not through the program maybe she has a year more to go find me a client and we'll disguise her identity and all the identifying details but find me a client who can tell sort of who can represent your organization tell how she got into being trafficked what she needs to get back to a life something close to normal what's helping her what your particular approach to this is and then i'll also ask her what her dreams for the future are and the money for Rosie the Liberator will go each month to supporting a woman who's being, I guess the word is rehabilitated, but restored to, normal, to life as close to normal as can be. And I find it absolutely stunning that people who've been through the worst, I mean, one rape is enough to influence a woman for life. What about, uh, can you do math in your head faster than I can? 10 times 365, I guess that's 3,650. But year in, year out, how does she ever recover? And yet I've met and talked with women who do. My son even dates a woman who was trafficked from ages 17 to 21. And with lots of therapy and hard work on her part, she doesn't identify herself as a trafficking victim at all. No, she's a stand-up comedian. And she's been out of the life for 20 years. And, you know, you wouldn't know what had happened to her in the past, unless you're close to her and she'll confide in you. But you know, if you see her, she's just a really together, smart, fun person. And you know, I can't fathom the strength of, well, resilience that a person has to go through something so terrible and then get back into something really pretty close to normal. And I've talked with quite a few women. I'm thinking of another who is a receptionist. She's African-American. She's 28. I think she's been out probably 10 years. And as an administrative assistant, she is so together, you wouldn't believe just she comes across as together as can be. And yet, oh, the, the absolute monstrosity of what she went through, a boyfriend betrayed her. And you know, she, she could be beaten, starved, sleep deprived, raped continuously, including gang raped. And yet, look what she is today. So 
What the money for Rosie the Liberator goes for is each month it will go towards funding a different anti-trafficking organization that specializes in rehabilitation, and it will go specifically for the person whose case I will describe. And you know what's really neat? The Rosie the Liberator campaign so far, I asked people for $5, and I would say yeah, three quarters of the donations are $5, but a huge number are $100. And one businessman just gave $12,000. So it's, you know, this is a great way of getting attention. And if you, if you don't donate anything, that's fine. I just want the attention of, of Rosie the Riveter to get out there. I'm trying to say Rosie the Liberator. And in your social media, if, if you do participate, identify that this is about human trafficking and send them to winthisfight.org. I love that. One of the things that you're doing as well and I know it's still in its fledgling developmental stages, also related to, to funding that potentially can have an even larger impact, hoping we'll get to that part of the conversation as well. There's an element to this that is frankly just genius, absolutely genius. I bet I know which one you're talking about. <laughs> but so that I don't embarrass myself, which one? Is, is this having to do with Preventing trafficking to begin Absolutely. with? Absolutely. Preventing trafficking and eliminating the incentive. Okay. Now, I'm so excited about this. Um, I may explode. Have you ever had a, uh, a guest explode on, <laughs> on, <camera>? <laughs> on screen? <laughs> no, but that's how I feel about it because it's so exciting. There's something that basically hasn't been done before, but there's a lot of forces. And when this fight happens to be playing a significant role, how about the role in putting it together? Uh, now, to explain it, it's a backstory of the principle of how we can really attack human trafficking at its root. And as many people will tell you, trafficking is all about the money. It's $150 billion a year industry. If you're a trafficker in New York City and you have four girls in your stable, you can easily be making a million dollars a year tax-free. So it's about the money. And I mentioned $150 billion. Can't do that through barter. No, you have to use financial institutions. Now, the backstory. A couple of decades ago, one of the larger software companies was having a terrible problem, tens of millions of dollars a year loss from pirating or counterfeiting. They'd hire people all over the place to track down the counterfeiters and put them in jail, but it was so incredibly lucrative. I mean, you could sell a program for $200 that you spent nine cents on the disk that you copied it, that you pirated it onto. So you put one guy in jail, it was whack-a-mole, somebody else would pop up right nearby, and they were get, making no progress whatsoever in stamping out the pirating. Well, some people whom I'm familiar with told the software company, you're going about it wrong. You know, you're, you're just not getting any traction from putting people in jail because they pop up elsewhere. Sound like human trafficking? But back to the software problem. They told the software company, let's attack the funding instead because we have the ability with very sophisticated knowledge of like the dark web and artificial intelligence and the ability to track money flows, they could track the profits of the counterfeiters. And the minute that you can show the track from, you know, the money came here and it ended up in this bank account here, probably through a few shadow companies, but you can show the bank, you know, in incontrovertible ways, here's where this money came from and it's hot money. The bank will shut down the account because you know, otherwise a ruinous hit to their reputation. But 
they can also just plain be shut down. Tremendous fines or being shut down. So no bank wants to use hot money. So what the the people who were combating the pirates did was they track the money to the banks, they get the bank to freeze the money, and then they get the money returned to the software company. In a matter of, it might have been a year, but sort of in that time frame, they effectively ended this particular company's problem with counterfeiting. I mean, it, it worked. So I've been in discussions with them. Might it be possible to use that same principle against the traffickers? Because for a hundred, you know, the software company, we're, maybe we're talking a hundred million. The, the trafficking enterprise is 150 billion. And so the amount of the prize of how you can pour sand in the gears of the whole enterprise by attacking the profits, seizing the bank accounts and taking away the incentive. The beautiful thing about that is it's very hard to put a trafficker in jail because they have extraordinary ways of keeping people from testifying against them. And I, I could talk for half an hour on some of the ones that I'm aware of, but it's hard to get anybody to testify against a trafficker because they can use absolute terror against them and against their families. So the odds of a typical trafficker doing jail time are way less than one in a hundred. But if you can get their finances, you can be a real deterrent. I suggested this to the organization that, that I want to describe. They want to be undercover enough at the moment, so I won't say their name, but we'll call them the good guys for the moment. I was able to get a donation of, and again, I don't want to embarrass the donor, but a significant donation to one of the largest anti-trafficking organizations to work with the good guys and to work with some people in Asia who are kind of circling around the same approach. and. You know, at some point, actually by May 11th, I'll be free to tell everybody involved in this, but here's what's going on. There's cooperation on an international scale on a fairly new approach that hasn't been done on any scale before. And I mentioned this to the Fulbright Foundation. They're the ones who do the Fulbright scholarships. I suggested to them, what if we could have a Fulbright forum just to get attention out for this new approach to combating human trafficking and hoping, hopefully, to, to raise some money along the way. Fulbright has scheduled a Fulbright Forum for May 11th, noon uh, Eastern time. I'm very excited for that. And in fact, I was thinking about one of the other conversations you and I were having. If you remember, one of the folks that I introduced you to sits on the board of the ninth largest bank in the United States. And I think he would be a very good person to engage in that conversation as well. I, I will follow up on that for all I'm worth. But UBS, the financial institution that, as far as I know, may be putting more resources behind attacking human trafficking than, than all the other financial institutions that I'm aware of, uh, they're going to support the Fulbright Forum. And then the C-Suite Network, the head of that, Jeffrey Hazlett, says that he'll make available to us his mailing lists of 350,000 people. So Fulbright has roughly 60,000 Fulbright graduates on their mailing list. And boy, I'd sure like to invite every possible person who has an interest in human trafficking to come to the Fulbright Forum. It's virtual. Save May 11th. And you know, there's the possibility, I mean, the excitement level I hear about, if Fulbright wants to support this, if Jeffrey Hazlett, 
from C-Suite Network and its 350,000 members. UBS is excited about it. Now, I think we're really onto something. Now, the obstacle, why hasn't it been done before? The people who are qualified to do this kind of super high-tech ability to find hidden stuff, they typically make a quarter of a million dollars a year and they can't do it for charity because you know they've got mortgages to pay and kids to put through college. But if we could assemble, I'm picking a number that I, I want to be able to reserve the right to change it wildly. But I heard one person guess that, that $10 million could make a huge difference. You know, maybe as we get closer to uh, figuring out the details, maybe it's $50 million. But to make a dent in the, one of the worst scourges that afflicts mankind, I mean, I'm kind of hoping that, that Bill Gates will hear about this and say, oh, yeah, here's a check. But failing that, if lots of people come together and fund this effort, it could be world changing. I mean, the amount of suffering that could be prevented. I've mentioned some of the people that I know went through rehabilitation and came out well on the other side. But do you remember what I said, what Dr. Kangro said, imagine the most depressed you've ever been in your life, the death of a loved one, like maybe a spouse or imagine that every day. But then imagine the ability to keep it from happening. Well, that and not only for the people who are the direct victims of being trafficked, but also their entire families as well. Yeah, the amount of suffering. I, I know of families. I'm thinking of a woman that I was really quite close to. She knew her daughter was out in the street and there was no way of reaching her. I mean, the pain that that mother went through had to be pretty close to what the pain the daughter was going through. But the whole family, sure. I mean, the sure. ramifications are endless. And then on top of that, I, I did a story recently. It's not published yet, so I don't want to tell you the names, but I'll certainly tell you the story. There's this fabulous woman who was an undercover cop and undercover, she was a prostitute. I think you'll find this fascinating. She told me that she would have 12 hour shifts and in I don't know, 10 or 12 years of, of having this job, there was not there was never a shift in which she wasn't pulling her gun out. But here's what she told me that I found so fascinating. Now, she's, she is a an undercover cop posing as a prostitute, and she typically arrests 30 people a night. She said, I don't care who sleeps with whom. I mean, that's just not my interest. But the reason that police go after prostitutes, or, or particularly after the Johns, is because if she's arresting 30 people, she said at least half of them are going to be part of some other criminal activity. You know, it's just a perfect way for them to interact with and be in front of and arrest people who are bad in other ways. Maybe they've just recently committed a robbery, or maybe they're a drug dealer, or, you know, there, there are so many ways where criminal activity completely overlaps sex crimes. Isn't that interesting, though, that she has no interest who sleeps with whom, but she's really interested in, in finding the person who is recruiting underage kids? You know, that kind of makes sense. There was a little bit of, if you think back to, to New York City, how, for example, stamping out graffiti correlated heavily to muggings on the subway. There was a correlation there, not necessarily causality, but there was a correlation. And so it's by getting in that environment and figuring out how these networks all come together. I think that's there's something there for sure. You used the word network, and, and that yeah. seems to me what's important, because I also read that when prostitution begins to flourish in a neighborhood, you know, a whole network of other really detrimental 
to mankind's happiness begins moving in. So maybe it's a broken windows theory kind of thing. But imagine if we could take the profit out of it. Right. Yeah, exactly. I think with the right awareness and with the right introductions, you'll raise way more than 10 million. You'll raise 50 to 100 million to stamp this out. And the key will be to finding the right individuals to make up that software development team and complete the work. You know some of them already, and it's a matter of recruiting the rest. I think from conversations I've had with the good guys, I think it will be almost a piece of cake because the good guys, they're based out of England, but they have representation in, in 47 different countries of people who do this, but they're not doing it for trafficking. They're doing it, companies hire them like like the one that were the software pirates. There are endless amounts of people who, who want to track illegal money flows. It's They just haven't used their enormous skills together on anti-trafficking, but it can be done. And they tell me, well, they say, Going into it, we have to recognize that there will be a vast amount of fine-tuning and readjusting and not going to drop fully formed in our labs, but the potential is there. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I'm very excited, very energized by this conversation, the potential. I don't know, you probably don't know this, Mitzi, but I come from a tech background, come from that world. So I can clearly, clearly visualize some of the technology pieces that are required to come together. I'm not in that particular segment, and I don't know the you know the right people, but I can connect the dots easily. Well, I'm in love with technology because in 1965, I wrote my master's thesis on the future of computers. I've been in love with technology since since back then. And my favorite thing to do when it's the end of the evening and I don't feel like working anymore, I practice coding. Perfect. <laughs> I love it. I, I, I was going to guess, um, I'm not shy about my age. I'm 79, soon to be 80. And I'm thinking, I bet there aren't that many 79-year-olds who think database programming is just the coolest thing in the world, but I do. You know, it's been a few years since I've done a lot of coding. I used to do a lot myself. And I can totally identify with that, totally identify with it. And so I love that. I love that about you. Well, I don't have any friends who do identify <laughs> with it, so I'm really glad that you do. But somehow it's just so satisfying. You've got a problem, you're trying to solve it, and you know, pretty soon you know, you're just about to have it work. And, well, no, I'll try something else, and pretty soon it's three in the morning, and then it works, and suddenly you're king of the universe. Or in my case, let's be queen of the universe, empress of the universe. I have a couple of ideas I'm going to follow up after this conversation with you, but uh, I love this. I love this. So Mitzi, if folks want to connect, if they want to learn more about Win This Fight and how they can contribute, uh, what's the best way? Okay. Uh, there, there are two ways. First is the texting WTF to 51555. And I have to quick say why WTF. First of all, it's appropriate because this is, this is just the vilest thing in the world. The other thing is the name Win This Fight it came about because I was originally going to call this the anti-trafficking auction. That was going to be the name of the effort. But a neuroscientist told me, you know, the name anti-trafficking auction really sucks. You need something that people can remember and that has some wrongness to it because people remember something with something wrong to it. And he had looked up in, I guess it's GoDaddy, that the name winthisfight.org and also winthisfight.com are both available. And he said, make it winthisfight.org because it rolls off the tongue. There's a call to action in it. 
best of all, the initials are memorable because there's some wrongness. And he said, particularly yes. it's wrong because uh, you come across as somewhat ladylike and genteel. And for you to be saying WTF, he's, he's, and I hope he's right. He says that makes it a little bit memorable. It totally works. It totally works. So actually, we missed one thing. The text WTF to 51555 is a really direct way if you happen to have a, a smartphone handy. Another way, which which works really well for me, is just go to the website, winthisfight.org. And by the way, there's a contact me uh, section. And anybody who writes to me, I'll write to you back, especially if you volunteer and have a great idea, because that is how When This Fight grows. People that I've never imagined contact me and say, I've got this skill. Can you use it? And I say, yes. Let's close with a postscript on the 59 carat ruby and how this all comes together. Perfect. All right. The 59 carat ruby. One of the premises of when this fight is we have the ability with the help of an auction house in New York of converting tangible property into cash. And a lot of ultra wealthy people have like jewelry that's in storage or works of art that are in storage or historic collections. And I'm going to give a case example of how what I'm about to describe works. There's a man that I know who has donated to win this fight. He's donated a necklace that belonged to Marlena Dietrich. It's diamonds and sapphires and it's appraised at a million dollars. He wants to support anti-trafficking. He doesn't have handy cash, but he does have this, this item that he would give up to support anti-trafficking. And he said, if, or actually we talked about how if he went to a jewelry broker, that take 40%, he could only give away 600,000 of his million dollar necklace. If he went to a typical auction house, it would cost him 20% commission, but there's an auction house in New York that will do it commission free. Well, Knowing that there is this auction house who, for the sake of anti-trafficking, is, and by the way, I certainly know their name, but I don't want to say it yet publicly for a very good reason, and that is they don't want their other clients. It's one of the largest auction houses in the world, but they don't want, yes, they want to figure out how to, how to handle the messaging of that they're doing an auction for, with no commission, and they don't want all their other clients to ask for the same thing. So at some point, this will come out. And I'm dying to tell you the name because it's big and famous and prestigious and I love them dearly. But since they've agreed to be commission free, I spent a good bit of 2019 traveling the world, collecting astounding donations. They had to be a million dollars or more. And I'll share with you the biggest one. I was in Taiwan. Uh, that's after having been in the speaking engagement in China and Hong Kong and so and collecting donations. But so now I'm in Taiwan and I'd been giving talks. This guy heard of me, invited me for tea at his home. And he had an interesting background. His family were the hereditary curators of the Qing Dynasty jewelry collection. So we're talking about human trafficking and, and what an awful thing it is. And then he said, Mitzi, you know, we're sipping tea. Mitzi, you know that, that this is the largest source of income or one of the largest sources of income for organized crime, they're not going to like it if you raise a hundred million dollars. They may try to murder you. What do you say to that? And my mouth opened and I said something just totally blurting it out. I didn't think that ahead of time. I said, I'm 78 years old. I believe in this cause. 
I don't care. Well, put his tea down, got up, walked behind his chair. There was a sort of curtained wall and he pulled back the curtain and there was a safe and he you know, manipulates the dials of the safe, opens it and reaches in and takes out a ruby that to me looked something like maybe a speck smaller than a golf ball. And, you know, he hands it to me. He's giving it to me. And I once took the Gemological Institute of America's Colored Stones project. So I know a teeny bit about about rubies. And I'm looking at this thing. And to a naked eye, I didn't have a jeweler's loop with me, but to the naked eye, it was flawless. And then he began telling me the story of it that it belonged to a Qing dynasty emperor probably 300 years ago. And you can tell the age of it because fashions in faceting have changed over the centuries. And back then they didn't even facet the rubies. Well, he gave it to me. And I don't know what it's worth, but I've, I've heard wild guesses that that thing alone might be 40 million. I think you're well on the way. I think you're well on the way. And I know of some of the other items that have been gifted already. I'm very excited for this project because I think it's going to, number one, it's going to attract a lot of attention. And there's a lot of folks. Absolutely. I mean, there's many of the ultra wealthy who say, you know what, this has been sitting in my safe for the last 15 years. I would rather see it get put to work towards something that's productive rather than just being a trophy in a safe. And there are very beneficial tax consequences, which will vary from person to person. So I don't want to promise, hey, you'll get a big tax deduction. But if you happen to be in that situation, please talk with your accountant. And I think you may get very good news. I love it. Well, Mitzi, I love the story. Um, as again, I'm just thrilled to be able to help in an even, even in a small way. And for the listeners at home, definitely connect with Mitzi at winthisfight.org. That's winthisfight.org or text WTF to 51555. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.